Hello guys, welcome to this episode of A Chat With Pat. On this episode, I'm joined by Nick Lacandro, manager of Team Subaru Giant, uh, racing team on the Cycling National Road Series circuit. Um, Nick is a wonderful man, not only being a competitive cyclist um, on the National Road Series and managing this team, he's also experienced advocacy work in dementia and early onset dementia after his father got diagnosed um, with it at a very young age. He now devotes his life to advocacy work relating to dementia and raise increasing awareness about the disease. Um, he won the twenty. He won the Ballarat Citizen of the Year in twenty nineteen slash twenty twenty. And he, above all else, he's a great bloke. We talk about his competitive days in cycling, and then also his advocacy experiences and awareness in raising discussions surrounding dementia and a dementia aware society. Um, I really enjoyed this chat, and as always, this chat and podcast is brought to you by the wonderful Lido Colada Cafe. Go enjoy some food and some coffee by the girls down there. As always, this one's a belter. Love you guys. viewers, listeners, Snake Edwards on the recording here. This one's a belter. chat with Pat. Nick Lacandre, welcome to this episode, mate. I appreciate you jumping on. Manager of Team Subaru Giant, um, the boss pretty much of the great man, Dill Lindsay, and also <laughs> Dementia Awareness Ambassador. Uh, Nick, I appreciate you coming on, mate, giving up the time. Thank you. No worries, mate. Thanks for having me after uh, seeing the quality of talent uh, like Dill and Lindsay that you've had on your podcast. I'm feeling a bit of pressure today. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he's got neck and neck in the ratings. Um, both quality, high quality numbers, mate. But I genuinely appreciate you coming on. Nah, great to be on, mate. Looking forward to having a chat. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, as we were, we were talking briefly off there, you've had quite the journey, I guess, into cycling. And I guess from the messages we've exchanged, it was kind of never really expected. I mean, I guess for our um, the listeners, where did this all start? Were you always involved in cycling or sport in a sense, mate? Yeah, so I've always um, had an absolute love for sport. Um, it's always been my absolute passion. Um, but I've always enjoyed cycling. Like, I mean, even when I was younger, um, I used to love sitting up and watching the Tour de France. Um, not really sure exactly what attracted to me, um, attracted me to it, whether it was just the scenery or um, just an appreciation um, for having these guys push themselves to the absolute edge. Like... You know, I think anyone that's even not a cycling supporter, you watch something that goes for three weeks and they're riding, you know, 150, 200 k's a day. It's pretty impressive feat. Um, but I suppose my kind of sporting career um, really started probably more cricket and running as a young kid. Um, I then moved into footy when I was around about 15, so relatively late starter, um, really. Um, but I suppose... You know, got a little bit lucky in my first year to get picked up kind of through the talent programs early. Um, and I managed to go through kind of like um, be on the squads for the Rebels and stuff like that. Um, spent uh, pre-season over in Perth with Swan Districts in the Western Australian Footy League, which was an amazing experience. But um, probably like I probably knew in myself that that late start into footy probably cost me a little bit. Um, you know, not to say I'm good enough to play AFL by any means, but I just probably didn't have the uh, the understanding of the game um, that you do when you're, a, you know, from Auskick going all the way through. Mm. 
Um, I then, um, I think it was 2016, was watching Ballarat Half Ironman um, and was just like in awe of like, you know, just essentially weekend warriors. Um, but yeah, just to go and, and do, you know, five, six, seven hours. Um, yeah, I thought it was incredible. And that's like, oh, yeah, something I want to have a crack at um, while I was playing footy. And I think just for me, um, a lot of my sport had it kind of got very competitive very quickly um, <laughs> as I like, kind of went through the ranks. And then it almost gets to the stage, like you still enjoy it, but it's something that you take so seriously. Mm. Um, and I was the same with my footy. Like I took it very seriously. Um, and then it almost becomes like a second job. Um, so I kind of wanted a bit of relief, something that I could do um, that was just a bit of fun. Um, but like everything else I've done with my sport, I, uh, you know, what was supposed to be a bit of fun, I was training like a maniac for this half Ironman, <laughs> doing like 15 hours a week. Um, and yeah, you're looking, everything. you're looking for fun. I guess endurance sports is probably down the bottom of the list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I, I should have picked something like Bull and Bowers where I could have rocked up with a few mates on a weekend and uh, had some slices and a good spread by the old ducks. But yeah, just keep picking ridiculously sports. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And then it wasn't, so from what you're saying, it was ne- nothing really detriment. Like there was nothing really that stood out from footy that made you think, oh, fuck, I'm not over this. It was just this more draw, yeah. more draw card to this endurance sports. Yeah, I think um, for me, obviously, I'd reached, um, you know, Western Australia, which, you know, is a very high standard and was very thankful to and spend some time there. But um, once I'd made the decision to come home, um, for me, obviously, that dream of going any further is done. And, you know, I was absolutely fine with that. I think I was halfway through my uni. And my decision was to finish off my uni, and that was the priority and the direction I wanted to take. Um I'd won a couple of flags with Geelong Amateurs. Um, I'd had some individual success as well with Clyde Bess and Ferris. And um, I think I was second in the league, Bess and Ferris in Colac. So I'd had that team individual success. So I probably didn't really feel like I had anything more to achieve in footy. Um, And I suppose I probably learned, um, looking back now, I'm someone that um, probably likes to push themselves to find that, um, that's not necessarily success, but to find how far I can push myself yeah. um, in a sport. And once I feel like I've gotten the most out of it, I'm kind of like, what what challenge is next? Yeah, yeah. It's almost more like a an aim for yourself, like see how far you can push yourself. And people kind of lose that in team sports, and that's probably something that is gained in triathlons or cycling or running or whatever. Definitely. And I think um, for me, um, even looking back through, um, you know, my short cycling career today, yeah. um, I probably learned that it was a lot of it is how far yeah, I've been able to push myself as opposed to um, necessarily what success or how many races I could win. It was more, yeah, how far can I push myself to be the best version of myself within so, that sport? Yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's exactly right. And I think a lot of people would definitely relate to that as well. Um, and we briefly talked about how quickly you got competitive in the cycling. How did that kind of transfer from just doing the weekend warrior type of stuff in the yeah. Ironmans into just cycling itself? 
Did you find yeah, you were the most talented at that, or were you just most enjoying it the most, or was it what was it? Um, yeah, it was a ridiculous transition. Um, I think I I trained for the half Ironman while still playing footy. Um, oh, I completed <laughs> that in maybe 2017, um, and then I loved the cycling. Um, I think like a lot of people, like I absolutely hated swimming, like swim like an absolute stone um, and just find it so boring. Um, so I was like, oh, yeah, like I really like the cycling. Like I wouldn't mind probably just doing that. And then I think I played one more year of footy and was probably riding maybe five or six times a week um, and had done a few kind of races, um, like just club stuff, but was just really enjoying it. And I probably was getting to a stage with footy where I'd still rock up and I was playing, but I probably like just wasn't really striving to get any better or push myself or, um, so I kind of just got to the stage where I was like, well, I'm really enjoying cycling. It's a new challenge. I know that I've got so much more to achieve and push myself here where I didn't really have that in footy. So I kind of just made the decision on the spot just to be like, oh, well, I'm going to give cycling a go. Um, I think that was 2017 um, and then literally from the time I made the decision in September, I was then lucky enough to get on to Anchor Point, which was with Dylan yeah. in April the next year. So literally like five, six months. Wow. So it was pretty crazy. Wow. So there must have been a little bit of talent there for cycling, I guess, kind of something that draws you there for that sport, I guess. Yeah, I think I've always had like, um, I think a really big endurance background, like ever since my young days um, when I first did running. Um, and even that was probably a strength with my football is my running ability. So I, I guess I had an aerobic base there, um, you know, and I just probably fortunate that Dylan was in Ballarat um, with uni and involved in the club and um yeah i don't know i probably nagged him a fair bit or <laughs> um, actually, i'm pretty sure the first time i met dylan we went on a four or five hour ride and on the back end of it he was blowing up pretty bad and i gave him a <laughs> yeah um, it was bonking. And I thought, that, that's the moment that was our connection i gave him a gel and he felt like he owed me one so he got me under the team <laughs> no muffin uh, Dylan and I have experienced a lot of muffins uh, over our time training together, but uh, it's, he usually needs one a bit more than I do because he's usually uh, bonking at an Uh We've all been there, definitely. We, we, um, we definitely credit a lot of muff talk on this podcast. Right? Yeah, we love, we love it. Anyway. He likes to think he's the original uh, muffin man, but I'm definitely taking the credit for that. It goes on about the... Well, Raspberry white chocolate one at Fika. Do you think it's the, the top? Yeah, spot. they're pretty elite. <laughs> Shout out to Fika if they're listening. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, we've got other sponsors of the show, Cafe in Portland, but we'll give Fika a gig. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure their muffins are equally as good. Oh, any muffs are good muff. Um, <laughs> so when you went from just casually psyching somewhat and then all of a sudden, next minute, you're in this team high level. I could only imagine that was quite a whirlwind. What was the hardest thing about going from the contrasting environment? Um, there was very different environments. So even though I was on a cycling team, um, and I remember my first race was actually Tour of South Coast, um, which is around um, your way in Portland, mm. uh, Warrnambool kind of way. Um, and I suppose um, kind of, 
cycling can be a very individual sport in many regards in the NRS here in Australia, just because of the nature of it in people wanting to progress to a higher level past NRS in Australia. Yeah, they say it is a stopgap almost thing. Like it's just a, right. a passing through. Yeah. The mentality can be how do I get results for myself in order to move on to the next level. Um, and yeah, that was a big shock for me coming from um, sports background, oh, sorry, football background and heavy team background, going from having 21 other blokes around you and a common goal to then going into an environment where there's, you're in a team, but it's still very individual. Um, and I think like just, I hadn't really had that much experience racing either. So you're coming in, you've got a hundred blokes around you, um, you know, kind of your bars are touching and you're in the middle of a pack. And like, that was like, that was terrifying for me. Um, yeah. so I never really experienced anything like that. And looking back now, like I was like, yeah, way too green to be um, right. getting thrown in an RS race. What do you remember um, so from that? kind of very much. What do you remember from that race? So, right? I mean, that'd be obvious. Oh, <laughs> I got absolutely hammered that race. <laughs> I think um, I finished with the Peloton one out of like five or six days. I think nearly every day I was out the back, just pretty much either by myself or with a few other guys <sighs> struggling to make time cut. I remember one that one of the stages, it was... Um, rained all day it was like hailing i was out the back with a group of four or five after like 10 minutes because we'd hit crosswind sections early and the race just exploded so i rode you rode like i don't know four hours in the rain um struggling to make time like it was just brutal and i was just like oh what am i doing here like i may as well be back on a footy field uh at least it's only uh two hours i know what i'm doing and i can have a few dim sims after the game <laughs> or or before the game as we as we well, yeah, yeah the old right. classic country footballer um, uh, it was such it was just it it was a massive um shock because you go from being totally comfortable and in your environment and obviously knew the game of football so well and so confident and comfortable in my own ability on a footy field. And yeah. then you get thrown into an environment where I wasn't comfortable at all, didn't have the experience, the knowledge, nothing. Um, yeah, and it was a real, yeah, it was a real shock to the system. <laughs> oh, I can totally imagine. I can totally imagine. Now, we often hear about, I think I've touched on that deal, I've touched on deal about this before, but we've also, we often hear about, um, you know, the mentality and the trash talk somewhat on the team in the team environment. Does this happen in cycling? Because Dill shared with me a couple of interesting stories. I don't know if you've had the same experience. Is there is there much of that going on? Is it a bit of a noose um, as you're riding the peloton and almost like a, a chess match in this mental game as well? Does that come into play in cycling? Most definitely. And I think, um, you know, the common thing is you hear people potentially watching the Tour de France and they like, Absolutely, it's amazing scenery and you can see that there's obviously a physical part of it having to ride for so long for three weeks. But, um, you know, once they start listening to the commentary and understanding the tactics and stuff behind it, they probably, yeah, then only really begin to understand that it's probably 90% is all above your head and not actually your physical ability. Like everyone that's racing at that level is a decent bike rider, um, you know, that's talented and got a really good aerobic base. And then the rest, you know, comes down to, um, yeah, race 
race smarts and um, how well you protect yourself and conserve energy and making the right moves at the right time. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like a game of chess. It's incredibly, um, yeah, it's amazing really about how much goes into it that you would never really understand until you're in the situation. Oh, I could totally imagine, especially at those high-level stakes in cycling. That's so tough. It's the most grueling sport where you've got to kind of think, it's a sport where at the end of the day, whoever does the most work is probably going to be sitting up on that first on the podium. Yeah, exactly. And it's, um, it's interesting. I kind of always link it back to football, the mentality maybe a couple of years ago when footy clubs were bringing in like basketball players because they were incredibly yeah, athletic. Yeah, yeah. As we see them drafting and stuff at the moment for that, it's, yeah. That's right. And they don't understand the game, but they go, oh, they're really, like they're athletic, so we can just work around that. Where it's now, it's probably gone back to the pure footballer like um, Caleb Daniel, like small. Yeah. Um, but got the football smarts and understands the game. Yeah. Um, where I think a lot of people in cycling um, are coming now have huge aerobic and numbers-wise are phenomenal, but um, probably don't have the race craft and knowledge and smarts um, that were maybe in cycling going back five or six years ago. Yeah. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's interesting how different sports transition um, and the kind of athletes that come in and out and kind of how it works. Yeah, yeah exactly right. Yeah. So from going to 2017, you've competed as an individual and within a team. What kind of then made you to want to manage a cycling team like Team Subaru Giant? How did that fall into place? Because <laughs> this is, I'm, yeah. I'm hearing this, and it seems pretty whirlwind, and this is a top echelon of sport in Australia. It seems pretty like a whirlwind journey, mate. Yeah, it's, um, so I, I think in my first year, um, I kind of helped, uh, on the back end of the first year, helped Andrew out. Um, a little bit. Um, his partner, Vicky, had some health issues, so he couldn't um, necessarily be there the whole time. Um, and through, yeah, I, I don't know, I just managed to get a few kind of equipment sponsors on board for the team, whether it be helmets and I think we got maybe giant bikes on as well. Um, and yeah, I don't know, I kind of almost just fell into it, I suppose. Um, Andrew, yeah, for the, and I guess the year after as well was, um, you know, his priorities were elsewhere, which is, you know, fair enough. And, um, yeah, I suppose it kind of just almost happened with me out really noticing. And now yeah. here I am and have the whole team to myself. So it's, um, <laughs> yeah, it's been a weird journey. I would, if you had asked me a couple of years ago and I was playing footy that I'd, one, be riding in the National Road Series and I'd be looking after a not just the men's team, but have a women's team at it as well. I'll just sort of laughed at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's definitely crazy. Now, as you talked about before, it um, would have been quite difficult going from that team mentality, individual mentality. Has there been instances where it's worked, helped being a manager? Like going from footy team environment to coming into um, uh, managing a, you know, that individualistic side in a team of uh, cycling? Yeah, I believe it has. I mean, I come in to cycling, obviously, with a very big team mentality. Um, and obviously, you playing football yourself, you, um, when you go from different teams, um, you know what works and what doesn't work in terms of culture, whether um, you click or don't click. And often that can determine your success um, for the year. I mean, I played in teams that we probably had the best list and sure we make finals, but you don't get the job done when it counts because you haven't clicked. 
but I've also been in the teams where we probably haven't had the most talent, but we've won the flag because we've got the right culture. Yeah. Um, so I think by playing so much football and being in so many different team environments and different list structures, you pro- I, I think I have a good understanding of what works and what's important and why. Yeah. Um, so my big focus was bringing in that team element into cycling, which um, has been quite challenging because you're changing the mentality of these guys that want to be successful to try and get to the next level and try and bring them back to a team environment where um, you're trying to encourage and celebrate them riding themselves into the ground to potentially <laughs> finish 10, 15 min- uh, minutes behind the peloton in order to yeah. help a teammate. Teammate out. Yeah, um, people so often forget that. Like we see that, okay, the rider's going to help and work so hard for this one bloke and that would be so hard to control, I could imagine. Like, definitely, and especially at our level because, you know, if you look at a world tour level, people are happy. Well, people will do that because they're getting paid money to do it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas... In our competition, no one's getting paid. So you're asking them to sacrifice their own performance um, and results to help someone else. Um, so it's an even harder dynamic at our level to try and foster that um, when the only reward is team success. Yes, yes, 100%. Are you, do you miss competing? From what I know, like, do you miss or do you... Um, it's an interesting one. Um, so I suppose I competed as early as January this year in the road nationals. Um, and I think for me is I've gone through a pretty big journey, um, in understanding, um, I guess why I do things. Um, you know, we spoke a little bit earlier about I've kind of why I would move from footy when I've had a pretty established or good career into cycling where I had nothing and, Um, You know, I think for me is, um, so to give you some insight around my full-time job from about September last year, I think on average I was doing maybe around 20 to 25 hours a week of training on the bike around a full-time job. Yeah. Um, So I would be getting up at 20 to 5, I'd do two hours, I'd go to work, I'd come back, then do another three hours, like on some days. Um, so I pretty much threw like the absolute kitchen sink to do as well as I could do at nationals this year. And my goal was um, to finish. Um, mm. Nationals is an incredibly hard event. And I think you get a lot of respect by just finishing, which is, sounds silly because you go, I oh, wouldn't you want to win? Um, a lot like Mount, can... the Mount Bunnyong event, isn't it? As people say. That's that right. Same yeah. Thing, yeah. So, um, you're racing against guys that um, come back from overseas and are racing world tour and, um, so for me, I wanted to finish. Um, I was definitely in the best form of my life. Had got probably through the hardest part of the race. Typically, the first lap or two is just like ridiculously on. They try and kind of sort the people out that probably shouldn't be there. Um, and on the, I think, third or fourth lap, my chain came off. Yeah. Race over. Um, you know, and I, so you go, well, I've been training for 10, 12, you know, weeks. 20, 25 hours a week, and then that happens. Like, and I was, I was pretty distraught um, yeah, after it. Yeah, and it's funny. I probably just had this realization. Um, was actually um, with a fellow Portland uh, member, Shannon Malseed. <laughs> oh yeah. Um, we had really good chat, and often have good chats about this kind of stuff. And um, I was probably thought that my result on that day defined 
what you think is defines you. And yeah, you know that. Whereas you go, well, I train from September. I train close to 20, 25 hours a week for this period of time around a full-time job, managing a team, uh, running a non-for-profit organization. So just the ability to get myself in the best condition I could was actually the win, not actually yeah. the result on the day doesn't define it. But I probably got, a 99 out of 100. It was just that yeah. little 1% on the day that didn't go my way, but that shouldn't define the rest, everything else. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's such an important message. Like, and it's not just in sport or fitness or whatever. It's in anything, anyone goes there. And especially in these times as well, where we've got a lot of time to think and we're comparative a lot and we're not doing much else and we think I'm moving nowhere. And It's a very important message to think like, yeah, exactly what you said. These, these things don't define you who are, it's not, yeah. The work in the last 12 months is not going to define this one moment at all, no matter That's, what it is in jobs and careers. So I think it's a very important message to say that you know, no matter what you're doing, you know, you can change that narrative. You can essentially change Absolutely, it. yeah. And you're 100% right. You're the only person that can dictate that narrative and that thought process. Yeah. Um, and there's actually a really interesting um, uh, speaker called Ben Crow, who I recently yes. listened to recently, yeah. and he speaks about achievement versus fulfillment. And I think I, that's I've reached that point where I understood um, I was fulfilled from all the work I had done and being able to tick off, you know, the ninety nine percent and letting that being the win rather than the achievement. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that was a really um, big mind shift for me and um, you know but I think you, you kind of not that having goals is a bad thing but it's, as we spoke about it's not that end result it doesn't matter whether you finish first or tenth it doesn't actually change who you are or the work that you put in so um, yeah probably that big mind shift, mindset shift for me. Exactly yeah it's so important to realise and yeah it doesn't make you any less fitter or any less of a performer um, that's yeah, right you know, or any less of an athlete or a person. Or a person. <laughs> so that's the, definitely the biggest one as well. <laughs> yeah, especially in these times. It's just something I think a lot of people can definitely take away from it. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Now, as we were saying, I want to go back on the cycling's booming at the moment. Yeah. Pretty, pretty um, highly sought after and engaging sport. How do you feel about that? And why do you think that is booming so much at the moment? Um, and how do you feel about the future of it going towards? Because, it astounds me that people like the National Road Series aren't getting any sort of payment. Do you think that might change with the increasing popularity? What do you think might happen? Um, I, I don't think so, as much as I'd like to say yeah. yes. Like, um, I would love to see people who are doing, who are flogging themselves in stories like you and Dill, you know, going right on hours on end before work, get some sort of um, financial. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, you can relay it back to, um, you know, we've both, both played in a similar league um, at the same club in Leicester. Yeah. yeah. If, if we think about what, let's say, even the top uh, footy player in that competition might be on, let's say, a thousand bucks a game. The guy that's probably still running out and is your 22nd best player in the first is probably still getting a hundred bucks a game. Yeah. So he's still getting uh, a thousand. Oh, well, he'll probably get a thousand bucks for the year for playing for two hours, uh, training twice a week, maybe once a week. Um, the top guy might get ten grand a year or fifteen grand a year um, by just training two nights a week and rocking up and playing um, for two hours on a Saturday. Where you've got your riders here that are doing twenty hours a week. Um, 
they're at the highest level in Australia that they can be and they're not getting paid anything. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's certainly, it's so strange um, to yeah. think about it like that. But I suppose that's the markability and the power of the industry of AFL than the nature that it is, um, you know, with TV rights and everything that um, gives it the economic profile that it does. And obviously Australia cycling doesn't quite have that um at this stage it's something that's not going to change anytime soon um even getting sponsorship is incredibly hard um to even help substitute these athletes um but i mean from uh, cycling is definitely growing i still think that's a great thing and um, there's a lot of positives from cycling um i love that you can be 15 or that you can be 85 and you can still ride a bike and yeah. I love uh, stuff like e-bikes that are coming in. Um, so my mum's got an e-bike. Yeah, um, she's yeah. like 70. She gets to go out with a group of women. She gets social connectivity. She gets fitness. Um, you know, like there's there's so many positives just in itself. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly right. It's and it's much more. It's and it definitely is a lifestyle. Like the yeah. activity itself, like it's definitely turned into that lifestyle kind of thing where. You can get that social connection. You can do it for a long time, and innovation's kind of probably helping that. Yeah, definitely. And I think, um, like for me, you know, I've learned um, over the you know past seven, eight years the importance of social connection. Um, you know, through my experience with my dad and dementia, and mm. so anything that helps promote connectivity, social connection, like I'm such a big advocate for. Yes, yes. Now that's a great. Um, segue, I guess, into what I was going to ask next. I mean, people that might have been listening so far might be thinking, oh, well, Nick, the cyclist, but there's also Nick, the 2017, what was it, 2017 or 18 Ballarat Citizen? Oh, no, last year, Ballarat Citizen of the last Year. year. I did my homework and, um, <laughs> and much of it was because of your amazing work surrounding dementia awareness. Yeah. Um, what was it if you kindly share the story behind that and some of the news that rocks your family, I guess, with your father getting early onset dementia? Yeah, sure. So I think um, oh, it's almost so long ago now, I forget, but I was quite young, I think. I was around 21, 22 um, kind of age, I think first, second year of uni. Um, and my dad got quite sick. Um, originally, we thought it was pneumonia um, at the time. He spent a couple of weeks in hospital, um, you know, really knocked him around. Um, he came out of hospital um, and just wasn't, like a hundred percent the same he might have been like 90 percent um and i suppose over the course of maybe one to two years um we probably picked up um little bits and pieces over that period and only probably really um really things that you would pick up if you really knew someone um so for example <clears throat> i think i was driving or he was driving me home from a footy match um it might have been like six o'clock so just starting to get dark and he pulled over and he asked me to drive home he's like oh, i just can't quite like i just can't see that well um and like traditionally like or at least for like my dad like if you're going on a family holiday or anything he's the one that's driving and like doesn't matter whether it's day night rain hail shine like he would just drive so then straight away i was like oh like that's that's not something that's that's not common like that's not quite right um and there are a few instances um like that um like small things like 
um, reading a watch um, and reading the time, um, yeah, that we just picked up. And then, yeah, he originally, um, then from there, got diagnosed with young onset dementia, which was a massive shock at the time. Um, he was only 54, I think. So dad was a builder. He was like incredibly fit. Um, still played like badminton once a week and um, yeah obviously very physically strong and that from his work as a builder and I was like like how, what's young onset dementia like how does someone 54 have dementia like I assume it's um, the old lady around the corner that's yeah. 80 that has dementia and just a bit forgetful um, so it was just like um, yeah a complete learning curve for me and um, yeah a complete shock um so um for anyone listening young onset dementia um is anyone diagnosed under the age of 65 um and i suppose for me um you know given that was my thought process at the time um you know it's like well how many other people out there then would have the same thought process um and i suppose through my journey um over the last Oh, it's probably 10 years now um, that is very much the common perception yeah. um, but I suppose when, when he was originally diagnosed um, from being diagnosed um, or actually from first being sick to passing away was seven years yeah. um, so it's actually reasonably but that's not a long amount of time um, and um, a lot of people would just go you know maybe it's a mental deterioration but it was physical as well um, you know, dad would walk with a slight limp and, um, you know, it was very much a shadow of himself. So it was very much a mental and physical deterioration. Um, and I mean, every case is different with dementia. Oh, there's no one case that's exactly the same. Um, but, you know, there's people as young as their 30s being diagnosed with dementia. Like, that's incredibly scary. Like, these are people with kids and, you know, well in their work career Um so I think for me, um, obviously, it was a really life-changing experience. Um, you know, you look up to your dad as a, as a symbol yeah. of strength, um, an idol, like, um, and then he, you know, your father, or oh, your mum for that matter, but they're always someone that, you know, is the protector of the family and that yeah. really strong figure. And it went from him looking after me my whole life and he played a really important part um, throughout all my sport and um, to me then having to help look after him. Um, and we're talking about helping to feed him, wash him, take him to the toilet, everything. Um, yeah. So all those things that we take for granted um, and that we just do without thinking, um, you know, then you're having to help your own dad with those things. Yeah. So that's incredibly confronting um you know thing to do at you know i was only you know mid-20s at the time um so that especially was a massive that age, thing. especially yeah that age, having those oh, and there's, there's there's no handbook on how do you deal with your parent in your mid-20s um yeah. you know with something like this like it was yeah you know it's just such a a cruel kind of thing to kind of go through and watch your dad deteriorate from such a fit, healthy um, person to someone that needed your support 24-7. Well, not well, my family support 24-7 just to live. Yeah, yeah. Is it? And when was the moment when you thought, well, stuff that I'm going to try advocate and 
really push this and raise as much awareness as I can. Was there a moment that kind of made you thought, I'm going to try and raise as much money and raise as much awareness and advocate for this? Or was it just um, like, I didn't want anyone else to go through this? What was it? Yeah, there was. Um, I think um, I after Dad passed away, um, I, with me and a few mates, um, had decided, well, I decided I wanted to do a ride. Um, and it wasn't really to advocate or raise money or anything like that. Originally, it was more kind of like, you know, I've gone through a really heavy seven years. Um, I kind of just need some time to take a deep breath, get away um, and just kind of um, come to terms with everything. Um, so we decided uh, to ride from Uluru to Ballarat. Um, Uluru was my dad's last family holiday with mum. Um, I'd never been there before, so I was like, oh, yeah, well, we'll just ride from there. Like, we may as well. I had no idea how far really it was away or a real concept of how big of a ride it would be. Um, I think once I'd done some kind of research, it was going to be 2,300 Ks, which I was still like, oh, yeah, like I probably still didn't really have a concept of how far it was. <laughs> um, and what time of like, year oh, was it? Uh, we did it in September, so it coincided, oh. coincided with um, Dementia Awareness Month, which yep, is September. Yep. Yeah, so, so um, kind of getting a little bit warm. Might be yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it was also, um, I think Father's Day, was. we left the day after Father's Day as well, so I think that was kind of you know, a really nice fit as well. Yeah. Um, and I thought, I think like a week before, we were like, oh, stuff it. If we're riding that far, we'll try and like raise a thousand bucks. Like, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Um, and then I think like a couple of days um, into the ride, like we created a Facebook page and it just like went ballistic. Like we were putting up ride videos every day and we just had like three or 4,000 views like on every video every day. So we're getting so much traction. <laughs> Um, we would have caravanners that would pull us over um, and because they would have seen it on Facebook or we had um, a radio interview with um, Macca, who's like, I don't know, some radio show that all the oldies uh, listen to. There's, there's always a Macca. There's always an old Macca. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we had like caravanners pulling us over going, oh, like what you're doing is amazing. Um, and they'd go, oh, I've been, in my, I've been affected by dementia, whether it was my cousin, my uncle, my sister, my grandma. And I kind of, you then just start to get a bit of an understanding of how wide reaching this is. Yeah. And I think that was the first moment for me. I was like, okay, like this is, like, this is important. Like a lot of people are um, impacted. I've known from my experience that, what the perception on dementia was and it was just something that affected the elderly and that might be get a bit forgetful and that's kind of it. And that's kind of where it was like the light bulb for me a moment that I was like, okay, like there's an opportunity here to help lift the platform of dementia and give it the understanding that it needs. Um, and, you know, dementia is the second leading cause of death in Australia, uh, yeah. which is just, it's outrageous. Everyone knows about cancer and MS and, um, or, and they're really important um, diseases and one that needs awareness, don't get me wrong. Um, and they're very fortunate um, to have people like Neil Danaher, Carrie Bicknell, people like this that are great advocates for it. But then you've got this disease in dementia that mm. affects um, so many Australians and yet not many people understand it. So that's where I was like, yeah, well, maybe we don't have the advocate for dementia that we need, but and you know, I'm certainly no 
A grade celeb, but I was like, well, I've still, I've still got a voice, so I can still have impact. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. And I think just adding on to that, like everyone just thinks, I think there's a bit of not a stigma or a misunderstanding about, well, dementia is just an old person's disease. You know, yeah. they'll, they'll take care of it when they get aged care facilities. And I work at a hospital and I've really, one of the biggest things I, that I've been surprised about is just how much, just how much it really does break families apart. Like, it's you know it's not a it's not a nice thing like and it, I can only imagine and feel for you and your family about seeing a man who was so with it at one moment and almost get done by this silent killer and change the next moment. Yeah, you're hundred percent right. I think one of the key things is the isolation of the disease. Um, yeah. You know, Dad lost a lot of confidence in himself, so stuff like going out to a cafe and having your coffee didn't feel comfortable doing, um, you know, because he didn't want to go out and spill a coffee on himself. Or And not only was it isolating for dad, but because he required 24-7 care, which, which is what my mum provided, if dad doesn't want to go out, then mum doesn't get to go out. Um, yeah. So not only is it isolating for dad, but it's equally as isolating for mum as well. Um, you know, so I think that's often overlooked is the impact of the carer as well. Yeah. Um, so simple things like, you know, you know, for mum getting a haircut, going and catching up for a coffee with friends and all those really simple things, going to the bank and all those daily tasks, like almost become near impossible. So if you're not going out in the community to do those things, where are you getting your social connection from? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And- how did this impact your relationship with the rest of your family and within the family as well um, after your dad obviously passed away and obviously even during um, his battle with dementia? Yeah, obviously it brought us a lot closer. Um, you know, no one person can look after. Um, you know, it was important to us that mum still could go out and do things. Um, you know, my sister Justine played, you know, an amazing role with that. She just had um, a kid, so she wasn't working, but having a kid's a full-time job, yet she was still able to provide an amazing um, an amount of support to mum. Um, you know, so it's definitely brought us closer together. Um, and I suppose, like, you know, it's a really hard concept still for me to think about. You know, you, you know for mum, your life partner passes away, you work really hard your whole life, you get to the age, um, you know, she was around 60 um, you know, you're hoping you go into retirement, you get to travel around Australia and enjoy all your hard work. But mm. um, she doesn't have that person, you know, to do that with now. You know, that's something that really probably still upsets me quite a bit. Um, but, you know, I guess it just means there's an opportunity um, of family and, and friends to rally around mum and, and make sure she still gets to enjoy and do the things that she wants to um, as well. How was your relationship with your dad? I mean, you talk so highly of him and you're so close with him. How was your relationship with your dad during um, his fight with dementia? Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting dynamic. Um, I suppose, like, my dad and I were incredibly close. Um, obviously, sport has been such an amazing part of my life and a big part, and he played an enormous role in that. Um, and I, so I have three sisters, and so being the only son as well, um, obviously, we even had an even tighter relationship um, and it was actually quite interesting, um, even though dad was deteriorating mentally and physically, um, he still tried to have the same front as like the protector. Yeah. So for example, he would absolutely hate if I tried to take him to the toilet or shower and stuff like that. 
Whereas he would, was a lot happier letting my sisters do that. And I think that was because of the relationship we had that, you know, as we spoke about, he was that strong father figure. He was my mentor. He should have been the one looking after me and doing yeah. these things for me. And to have that reverse, it, it was, yeah, it was, it's so strange to think that someone can deteriorate that much, but, you know, to still uphold that status and relationship, you know, is, yeah, I don't know, it's so incredible looking back on it now exactly. um, that, you know, he wouldn't let me do those things because he didn't want to be seen as, you know, weak or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly right. You know, it just wows me credit to you that something so close to you and you thought that stuff and I'm going to do something about this and you had such a strong bond with your dad as well. Um, yeah. What's been the most... I guess throughout your yeah, awareness work and advocacy work, what's been the most, I guess, surprising thing about that journey for you, like that you found out in regards to dementia or, I mean, you touched on just how many people are actually affected by it. Is this something that's gravely misunderstood? Yeah, yeah I, think, um, I think it's changing and it's certainly not by just my work by any means. Um, but yeah, the, the, definitely the biggest surprise is just the lack of understanding and knowledge about what it really does. Um, you know, there's everyone kind of knows it might be getting a bit forgetful, and I think some some people understand the extremes of dementia can be that the person doesn't know who you are anymore, even if you're a family member. And I'm so yeah. lucky to get to that stage with with my dad. Um, but I think if you know the like the physical deterioration as well, and the fact that um, you know might it actually stripped a strong, healthy man in seven years to passing away. Like, I don't think people maybe would have the, you know, the proper knowledge that that's actually how aggressive and brutal it is. Like, you know, that's what stuff like cancer and MS does. Like, you know, and this is just as brutal. It's not just being a bit forgetful. Like, it will mentally and physically, like, strip and deteriorate you away. So um, that's probably... Um, trying to create that understanding. And I think once people understand how severe it can be, not just for the person, as we spoke about, but also the importance on the carer, um, you know, I think we'll see the shift change. And, you know, there's really small things, like as we spoke about with young onset dementia, you know, for my dad needing to go into respite um, for a day to give mum a chop out, you've got let's say when he was 56 or 57, um, 57 um, so halfway kind of through it, going into a facility with people that are 80. Like that's a massive mix match yeah, here. Like yeah. He's still got someone that can, he can still go for walks and, you know, he was still quite capable of doing things at that stage, yet he's going into a facility with people that are 80 years old. Like that's such a big mismatch. Um, so it's trying to create that understanding. And I think once that comes, um, it's like, okay, now we understand what it does what infrastructure and what models can we put in place, um, you know, to, to help people of all ages and abilities. Um, and, you know, I think just simple things like if people have more understanding, um, that means they might be able to pick up someone with young onset dementia that comes into their cafe. And if they understand that they've got that, they'll be a little bit more patient with yeah. them. Um, you know, so then if they can still feel comfortable going out to the community, that means the carer can also go out to the community. So they're still getting social connection. Um, you know, so, you know, I think the awareness piece is just so massive. And, and I think I've raised 
over 50 or 60,000 now, but it's honestly like, that's been great. Don't get me wrong. And I'm so appreciative, but it's really secondary because um, the 60,000 doesn't change the mentality and the awareness in people. So yeah. if we can change that, that's going to change so much in the community. Yeah, I completely agree. And just like you said, like that education side of things and just, I must take it in our day to day that if we do see someone who might show signs of dementia, that we can be a bit more tentative and patient and caring right. um, for these well, people. And it makes them, you know, a lot of things thing with young onset dementia is that you want to keep these people in the community as long as possible because as soon as the, you, you take them out of it, you know, the deterioration is going to happen so much yes. more quicker. And they can still live. Like, as I said, my dad could still walk. He could still talk. He can still do all these things. But if you become alienated, you don't want to go into the community because you don't feel comfortable. Um, so, yeah, that's purely just an awareness piece. And you know, especially in Ballarat, there's been some great um, places that have gotten behind it um, and become a lot more dementia-friendly. And it really is making a significant difference. So I think the shift is slowly starting to happen. Um, you know, just a little bit more work to go. Yeah. What, a, uh, what advice would you give any other families or carers or anyone that's might have received the news of that a loved one has been diagnosed with dementia? Um, yeah, good question. Um, I think be open, be vulnerable, be emotional. Um, and this is probably typically pointed towards males and I'll, I'll use my own experience in that because <clears throat> through the whole seven years with dad, I probably would have told maybe five people. Um, and therefore, if I'm not telling people what I'm really going through and what dad's going through, I'm probably not getting the support that I really needed to help me get through it. Um, you know, that's a common, definitely a common thing um, around males. Like you only need to look at the depressions and suicide yeah. and stuff it's because that old school mentality of being tough and stuff like that and, um, not showing emotion and being vulnerable, um, you know, which is a massive lesson that I've learned now. Um, so that aspect specifically for males, that would be my advice. Be emotional, yeah. be vulnerable. Um, don't be afraid to cry. Tell a mate, um, you know, and when you tell someone that, like, what as a friend, what do you say? Like, you can't, it's really hard. I understand that as a friend, but you just need to listen you yes. don't need to be able to give your worldly advice and tell you how to cope with it. I think just the ability to get it off your chest and let them know how you're feeling is the release that you need. Um, so that's probably my number one advice for males. As families, I think, um, yeah, just don't try and go it alone. Um, and I'd probably specifically speak out to friends of families going through it. Be there to support them as much as you can because, as you said, it's such an isolating disease. The more that you can drop around and have a cup of tea with um, the care and the person, the more social interaction they get, the more a part of it and support they feel. Um, so that part's so crucial. Yeah, exactly right. And this is a great message, especially in these times where dementia goes hand in hand with connection and we are so disconnected at the moment with the pandemic Correct. that, you know, the power of vulnerabilities that, you know, I often think about and I tell clients um, that, you know, in a moment of being vulnerable, and letting yourself go, you learn so much more about yourself than you do in a lifetime of being comfortable. Um, Could not agree more. And it's um, a big thing in, the, in our men's team that we're a big shift change that we are trying to make. And we did um, a chat a couple of months ago um, where we said, tell us one hero, tell us um, a hardship, 
and I don't remember what the third H is now, but it was trying to, you know, encourage them to be in an environment where they could be vulnerable. And as soon as you get one person that opens up, yeah. you know, they start to feel more and more comfortable. And, you know, you had, I had some amazing stories from people and, you know, these are 16, 17, 18 year old kids that have been through amazing things and probably have never been able to talk about it. Um, yet if we can foster an environment that encourages that, you then therefore, you know, our team has 20 people in it you go from not just having yourself having to deal with the burden, but you've got 20 people automatically that will come around and support you and be there for you, which is so powerful. Exactly right. Exactly right. What do you think your dad would say about Nick today if he saw the things that you were doing? Um, <laughs> what oh, you hopefully to say? Yeah, I'd obviously be proud. I've got no yeah. doubt about that. It's a hard one. Like, dad was pretty shy kind of guy. He was all about family. <laughs> um, you know, he would literally work, come home, be with family. Um, you know, so I think, you know, obviously through the charity rides I've done and through the, the awards I've been lucky to get, um, obviously the reason why, the foundations of why I've done that is because of him, so he'd probably be pretty embarrassed. Um, <laughs> but I know that he would be, yeah, he'd be proud and, um, you know, he would be obviously stoked that, um, you know, a step change is being made to help other people's journeys and families' journeys through it easier. Yeah, that's amazing, mate. That's amazing. And then, so what's your... I mean, I, I totally would 100% back that. He'd be proud of you. Um, and what's your future look like? I guess not only with managing, but also dementia awareness as well. I mean, um, what's your plans? I mean, it's hard at the moment to make anything. Um, yeah, it is. What are you hoping and what plans are you going forward for me? Um, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. Um, obviously, we were... It's going to be a really exciting year, kind of a bit of a transformation of the charity ride. So obviously the last two that I've done have been myself and um, a couple of close mates and kind of just been like ridiculous physical challenges, <laughs> um, which has been great. Um, and we certainly got some great traction um, with that, but it's probably this year been really fortunate um, with the CEO of Giant um, Australia, Darren Rutherford, um, he supports our cycling team, um, but he also connected me to Sam Mitchell, um, yeah. Hawthorne player. Um, his mother-in-law um, passed away in a very similar fashion to my dad. Um, so I've been fortunate enough to be introduced to Sam. Obviously got a really good relationship with him now. Um, and, you know, through his support as well as Darren, CEO of Giant, um, probably getting some more high-profile people involved. Um you know, to help um, spread that message on a larger capacity, I suppose. Um, so this year was going to be, you know, really great. Um, it'll still happen. I've got no doubt about that. You know, it just probably happens next year now. Um, but I'm really excited about where it goes from here. It's, it's definitely transforming in a more of a positive way um, for me. It's definitely the focus is still on creating awareness and knowledge. Um, and then once I think that step change is happening to the level that it needs to, um, then hopefully it changes to a point where the money that we raise along the way can go into, I don't know, whether it's infrastructure, small things. Like it might be um, a cafe and instead of having a step there, we have a small ramp, um, yeah. you know. Um, really small things um, like that. And then, you know, the dream down the future is to create uh, respite centres or facilities that can cater 
for young onset dementia and um, you know a lot of those there's been some step changes um, at Ayers House which is where my dad um, spent some time and where some of my money's gone to but they've done some really cool stuff they've created one room that looks like um, a movie theater um, <laughs> another room that looks like a cafe so it just makes them feel like they're still in the community and still have a level of independence and you can still do you know normal things um, so I really love that and I'm a big advocate for that, especially with young onset dementia is not um, treating them like people that can't do anything. They've still got a life. Um, they're still the same them. They're just a different them. Um, and, you know, really encouraging them to still feel like they've got a level of independency and, and can still live their life. Exactly. Yeah, that's amazing, mate. I completely love it. And look from myself and I'm sure I have a lot of people listening, um, Thank you for all the work you've done for this because so many families are affected by this. And um, my grandmother had a bit of effect. I lost her a bit younger with Alzheimer's, so I kind of know where you're coming from. Um, but, you know, enough of that. But you've done an amazing job, Nick, and I appreciate you coming on the show. And I'll buy the, oh. I'll buy the muffins and the coffees on the next, on the next round. Oh. And we'll get a little bunch ride going. Dill loves them. I love it. Dill's even started um, a gang with us called Muff Munchers, so... I think um oh big thank you to you as well because I mean um without getting to share my story on a podcast like this that um obviously people will listen to and, and hopefully even you know if it's one person that takes an interest out of it um and gets some knowledge out of it then it's still a great thing so without people like yourself sharing my story mate the message doesn't um reach as many people so big thank you to you Thank you, mate. I think a lot of people get a lot out of this. Thanks, mate. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. How about that for an episode, guys? I hope you all really enjoyed that one. Quick shout out to my man, Michael Peters, the man behind the camera, and also big, big love to 3RPC for allowing us to utilize the studio space. Without you guys, none of this would be possible. So big thank you. Please make sure you all follow at a chat with Pat on Instagram. Subscribe to the podcast via Spotify and iTunes and please don't be afraid to leave a review. We are open to all feedback to make this as good as possible for all our listeners. Stay safe and all my love, guys. You.